Welcome to Garfield Memorial Church. We are one church in three locations, Pepper Pike, Ohio, South Euclid, Ohio, and Liberia, Africa. Together, we seek to widen the circle through our core values of diversity, safety, authenticity, growth, and forgiveness. To learn more about Garfield Memorial Church, visit our website at garfieldchurch.org. And now, may you be blessed and inspired by our weekly podcast of the message from the 10 a.m. Sunday morning Mosaic worship service. Garfield Memorial Church, widening the circle. Good morning. Welcome again to Worship with Garfield Memorial Church. Uh, We continue in this series, Worthy. Worthy worship, worth-ship. What we worship, we're showing that we give worth to. And when we worship God, we're showing we're giving worth to God. Now, that's not that we're making God more valuable. God is worthy. But, but when we worship him, we show that we recognize his worth. We, we see his worth as, as much as we're able. And we, we give him a place of worth in our life. So I'm glad you're part of this today. My name's Scott Blevins, one of the teaching pastors here at Garfield Memorial Church, and uh, I'm, I'm glad to continue this series. Pastor Chip k- kicked it off last week talking about the call to worship and our invitation to come into worship where we can encounter God in some way, shape, or form, the Holy Spirit of God present. Jesus said, where two or three are gathered in my name, I am with you. Now, encountering God is the hope that we have in worship. But, you know, my dad used to tell me, and I know he's not the person that invented this expression. He didn't coin it, but he's the one that I heard it from first and most often, and it's the law of unintended consequences. Whatever you're doing and whatever outcomes you expect and hope for, you can bet that there will be unintended consequences, things that happen that you didn't expect or intend. And one of the things that happens when we encounter God, whether you expect this or intend it or not, is that when we draw close to God, when we see God's worth, we see our own unworth more clearly. When we see God's greatness and glory, we see our own brokenness and wretchedness more clearly. Maybe that's why the psalmist cried out, out of the depths, I cry to you, Lord. Isaiah experienced that. Isaiah, the prophet of God, one of the prophets of God, one of the great prophets of God, whose whose role and mission in life was to be so close to God that he heard God's voice and shared with the rest of the world what God was doing. He had a dream where he entered the throne room of God. You can read about it in Isaiah chapter 6. And when he encountered God and saw his greatness and saw his glory and majesty as a king, he said, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips and I come from a people of unclean lips. Peter had the same experience. When he was with Jesus out there in that boat, he'd heard about Jesus. He might even seen Jesus do a miracle. We don't know exactly what the timeline was when this happened and that happened. We know that he knew that Jesus was a great man, a great prophet, and he was out there in the boat with him and Jesus performed a miracle and, it, and Peter's eyes were opened. And he saw that Jesus was more than just a good man, a great man, and a great prophet. And Peter's response was, get away from me, Lord. Get away from me. I'm a sinner. The closer we get to God, the more aware we become of our own sin. The psalmist cries, out of the depths, I cry to you, Lord. 
Lord, hear my voice. Let our ears, let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. What we need in those moments when we encounter God and we become aware of his glory and our brokenness, whether we realize it or not, what we need is confession and assurance. And that's what we're talking about here today. Now I'm going to spend a little bit more time on confession than assurance. That's not true. See, I'm broken. I just lied to you. We're going to spend a lot more time on confession than assurance because we need to spend a little more time on that because we don't spend a lot of time talking about or teaching about confession. And we don't make it a regular habitual part of our worship time. So I'm going to take a little extra time on that this morning before we talk about assurance. And the first thing we need to look at is what is confession? What is it really? Because we're, uh, you know, it, you know, I know, actually, I got to watch myself and say in this, we've got people participating in worship from all over the world, but, uh, you know, I'm in Ohio in the United States of America because that's my cultural context, and I grew up watching TV. Confession to me is all about the courtroom. It's all about the law. It's law and order. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's true detective. It's getting the criminal to admit their crime. That's what confession is. But confession in the biblical sense, particularly the Old Testament, ancient Hebrew sense, is not primarily a legal concept. It's not about legal standing. It's about our relational standing. Confession has to do more with relationship than with law. We're not seeking through confession to get a a certificate of pardon. We're hoping to reestablish relationship. We're hoping for reconciliation. The Hebrew word for for confession is yadah. The Hebrew scholars out there, forgive me for butchering that word. I'm I'm not great with Hebrew. But the Hebrew, the ancient meaning of that word, of of that word yadah, was to throw out your hand. Whether you're throwing something out with your hand or whether you're throwing out your hand to grab something. It's that same word is used for confession of sin and confession of praise for giving praise to God and for acknowledging our own brokenness. The same word. We talk about confession in terms of faith. When Peter said, Jesus asked the disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you're the Messiah, the Son of God. That was a confession of faith. When people saw God and worshiped God like Isaiah did, like, uh, like others did when, when, when the presence of God came down at the temple after Solomon had built it and people worshiped, that was a confession of praise. And we also know about confession of sin, confession of brokenness. Confession at its most basic means this, that we are saying about something what God says about it. We're agreeing with God. When we praise God for God's greatness, we're agreeing with God. God knows that God is great and God is glorious. God has said that from the beginning. God calls us to where I am your God. I'm the one that created you. I'm the one that delivered you from the bondage of slavery and sin. I'm the one that's parted the Red Sea. I'm the one that did. Worship me. God knows his greatness. When we acknowledge God's greatness, that's a confession of praise. When we acknowledge our brokenness, that's a confession of sin. We're saying about ourselves what God already knows. I don't know how you view your own life, but, but if, if you're anything like me, you want to hide your brokenness as much as possible. That's a reflex that I've had. I've had for as long as I can remember. I've always wanted to appear better than I am. That's one of the things I struggle with. I got news for you. I figured this out late in life. Maybe you'll figure it out before I did. God isn't fooled. He's not. Not by anything you say, not by anything you do, not by any show you put on, not by any front you put up. God is not. God already knows you're broken. Just like God already knows I'm broken. 
confession is when we agree with it, with God about it. When we say about something what God says about it. Why do we need to confess? Why is it important? We need to confess, first of all, because we're broken. We are broken. You and I are broken. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, great Russian novelist and historian, knew a thing or two about brokenness. Experienced as much brokenness in in his life as anyone. He was placed in the Russian gulag, the Russian version of the Nazi concentration camps, for hard labor for, for an extended period of time. And this is one of the things he said in his book, Gulag Archipelago. If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of their own heart? The line between good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. Rich Mullins, a more uh, a, a, a contemporary poet, lyricist, said, said it this way. He said, with our hell and our heaven so few inches apart, we're awfully small and we're not as strong as we think we are. We're broken, you and I. I, I can't speak to your brokenness. That's not, that's not my place to be, to be, you know, parsing your life and sorting out where you're broken and you're not. But I can tell you a little bit about my brokenness. I'm not going to tell you all of it. We don't have enough time. You don't want to hear it all anyway. But I can tell you, since I was a little kid, I struggled with anger when I couldn't get my way. My earliest memory is throwing a temper tantrum, a fit. I was two years old. We were at a Cincinnati Reds game. That in and of itself is reason enough to throw a temper tantrum. But we were at a game. It was back in the 1970s. The Reds were good then. But I didn't care how good the Reds were. All that I cared about was my dad had candy in his shirt pocket and I wanted it. He wouldn't let me have it. I pitched a fit that embarrassed him and the whole family. I wanted my way. Later on in life, we were playing Monopoly with some friends of the family. I wanted to win. I wasn't winning. I wasn't getting my way. I got mad. I knocked the whole board off the table. Playing miniature golf with my family. I wanted to win. I wanted to get my way. I wanted to be praised. I wanted to be glorified for being as good as golf as anybody. And I couldn't do it. So I threw my golf club across the miniature golf course. This is me. This is your pastor. I got news for you. I still, it's been a long time since I've thrown a golf club. But I still get mad. I still struggle with anger. I still get get frustrated when I don't get what I want. Even though I know, I know it's God's will, not mine, that needs to be done. But I still wrestle with that because I'm broken. I'm broken. You're broken too. Confession means we acknowledge it before God. We see it and we acknowledge it. You and I are broken. But it's not just that you and I are broken. Our world and our culture is broken as well. You see, we can't avoid, one of the reasons we can't avoid brokenness is because we're raised in it. It's the air we breathe. It's the milk that we drink from the moment of our conception. We are brought into broken cultures and broken worlds, and so we see the world in broken and distorted ways, and we act on that. David is a prime example of that. Not my brother David, if you happen to be watching, but King David, one of the the first and great, one of the first and and possibly the greatest king of Israel other than Jesus. And, and, and he was broken. He was broken. 
You see, he was raised in a culture and in a place and an environment that said the king got to do whatever they wanted. What the king saw and the king wanted, the king could take. The king could send people off to do his bidding. He didn't have to go along with them. He could just do it. That's what kings could do. And so there was a point in his life when he sent the army off to fight a battle to take over a city and he sent his commanders off to lead that battle. He sent the Ark of the Covenant off to be in that. God was at the war. The commanders were at the war. The Israelites and their hired mercenaries were at war, but David was back at the palace making time with one of his friend's wives, with the wife of one of his friends. Her name was Bathsheba. He got her pregnant, sent her home, and then to save face, to cover things up so he could pretend like nothing had really happened, he brought Uriah, Bathsheba's wife, back from the war. He was out fighting in the war. Sent him home so everyone could say, oh, the baby's come. It's Uriah's baby. Uriah wasn't playing. None of this was a secret. None of this was done behind closed doors. Everyone knew what David had done. Everyone knew that Bathsheba was pregnant. Everyone knew that the baby was David's. Everyone knew that it wasn't Uriah's. But Uriah wouldn't play along. He wouldn't help King David save face. He wouldn't even go into his house so no one could claim the baby was his, so he could point his finger at David and shame the king. So David did what any king would have done in that day. He had Uriah killed. And it cost the lives of a few other people as well, but so what? The king needed to save face. And then he brought Bathsheba into his household and married her and openly claimed the child as his own. And no one seemed to care. It was just par for the course. That's what kings did. That's what people of power did. But the scripture tells us what David had done displeased God. And God sent his prophet to explain to David why what David had done was wrong, even though he hadn't broken any earthly laws, even though he hadn't violated any cultural norms. David needed to see that the way he saw the situation was not the way God saw the situation. And this is what David said in his confession. Part of what he said, it's in Psalm 51. Against you, God, against you alone have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now, he'd sinned against a lot of people. He'd sinned against Uriah. He'd sinned against Bathsheba. He'd sinned against the soldiers that he got killed along with Uriah. But but what David's saying here is, is, God, I've got to acknowledge that it's it's your frame of reference that matters. It's what you say that's important. He knew at this point that his culture had blinded him to his own brokenness. That there was sin that he didn't even recognize as sin because his culture said it was okay. But he acknowledges God against you. You alone have I sinned so that you are justified in your sentence and blameless when you pass judgment. Indeed, I was born guilty, a sinner, when my mother conceived me. Created me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit in me. David recognized that there was a brokenness in the world around him that he was blind to because he was born into it. It was just normal for him. It was just normal. And he had to come to see his culture as broken the way God saw his culture as broken. We need a little of that in our own culture. Whatever your culture is, I guarantee you there's brokenness in that culture. There are things that you think of as normal and right and okay and good that God says no. And part of confession is coming to see our culture the way God sees. This is why we need a new heart. 
This is why we need to change from the inside out. It's not enough that we just fix the things that we recognize and everyone understands and knows are wrong. We've got we've to be changed from the inside out because the kingdom of God is a culture that is utterly different from our own. We've got to see our culture is broken the way God sees it. What comes from confession? What's the fruit of confession? What's the result of all of this? The psalmist, well, confession, what comes from confession is this. Confession makes space for God to come in. Confession makes space for God. Without confession, we're keeping God at arm's length. Or worse, we're keeping God out entirely as much as we are able. Maybe this is why the psalmist in 130 says, I wait for the Lord. My whole being waits. And in his word, I put my hope. I wait for the Lord more than the watchman. Wait for the morning more than the watchman. Wait for the morning. What's the psalmist waiting for? He's not waiting for a certificate of pardon. He's not waiting for a a word of forgiveness. He's waiting for God. He's waiting for Yahweh himself to come into his life. He's crying out from the depths. He's acknowledged his sin. He's confessed. Now he's waiting for God to come in and clean him. Kathleen Norris in her book, Amazing Grace, tells of an amazing experience she had with young children. She was the artist in residence for a parochial school. By the way, that book she wrote, Amazing Grace, it's it's a great book. I encourage you to get it. She was artist in residence at a parochial school, and she was teaching the children how to write poetry using the Psalms as a model. A great practice. I encourage you to try that as well. And, And one of her students, this child, wrote a poem called The Monster Who Was Sorry. Hear what the poem, the child said in his poem. And he began by admitting that he hates it when his father yells at him. His response in the poem is to, in the poem here, is to throw his sister down the stairs and then to wreck his room and finally to wreck the whole town. I think I have something in common with this kid. The poem concludes, Then I sit in my messy house and say to myself, I shouldn't have done all that. Confession. Confession. And what happens? Norris says this. My messy house says it all. With more honesty than most adults could have mustered, the boy made a metaphor for himself that admitted the depth of his rage and gave him a way out. He was well on his way toward repentance. Not a monster after all, but only human. If the house is messy, why not clean it up? Why not make it a place where God might wish to dwell? Confession makes room for God to come in. See, if we insist on seeing ourselves and the cultures in which we operate as we want to see them, as broken and okay and normal and right, where's the space for God to come in? How could God come into David's life? If God said, everything I did is okay, it's fine. No one's criticizing me. No one's condemning me. What's your problem, prophet? Go away. Leave me alone. I'm going to do this my way. There's no space for God. God comes in when we confess. When we see our own monstrousness. How monstrous we are. And acknowledge that then there's an opportunity for God to come in and clean our hearts for us. 
confession makes space for God to come in. David, as his confession continued, said this, God, do not cast me away from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. What's David fearful of? What's David asking for? He's not, he's not asking God for a get-out-of-hell-free card. He's not, he's not afraid that, 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 that somehow he's going to get in trouble. His fear is losing the presence of God in his life. He doesn't want to lose the relationship. And so he confesses. And by confessing, he can plead with mercy to God and pray for the relationship to continue and to grow and to deepen. See, I've, I've always been afraid that if I acknowledge that monster inside of me, that God and others won't want to have anything to do with me. When all along, God wants me to acknowledge that monster so that God can come in and can clean, can restore, can redeem, can put a new and right spirit within me. Fruit of confession is reconciliation. There's a wonderful book. I should say this. I should have said it earlier, actually. I got I to gotta give a big shout out to Pastor Terry McHugh. Um, this this uh, message this morning that you're hearing is, is really a collaborative effort, um, and I, I owe her a great debt as, as, as she shared a lot of wonderful insight with me and helped in preparing this message. She, she told me about a book and a writer I hadn't heard of before. Donald Miller uh, is the writer. The book is Blue Like Jazz. I was so captivated. I actually got the book, read the whole passage she was talking about. Donald Miller was a follower of Jesus, but he was also aware of his own brokenness. And he was aware of the brokenness of his culture, particularly the culture of Christendom, Western Christianity, in which he had grown up. But he wanted somehow to reach out and make an impact in the world around him, to bear witness to the love of God and the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. And, and he, was, he was near, he was in Oregon, and, and there was a, a college uh, in Portland called Reed College. If I'm getting it right, I better, I might, yeah, Reed College. And, and on that campus, when he, at the time of his experience, when he was writing this, I don't know what it's like today, but when he was there, they were, that campus and the students and faculty both were openly hostile toward Christianity in the church and very suspicious of anyone who came in wanting to tell people about Jesus. But Miller was there with a small group of other people and they wanted to, to tell people about Jesus. They wanted to invite people into the hope that they had to get them to help them to know this, this Jesus who loved them in their brokenness and, and, and shared that brokenness with them. And, and Every year at Reed College, they have Ren Fair. And Ren Fair, as, as Miller described it, is an excuse to get drunk and high and do the other things that you do as college students when you're drunk and high, and as anyone else when you're drunk and high, really. And they were trying, there was a, there was a setup in, in, in a part of the campus where people would, would put up attractions and booze and these kinds of things. And his small group of Christians, they said, what are we going to do? What can we put up? And Miller was joking. He said, let's put up a confessional and write over the, on, write a sign out in front that says, come in and confess your sin. <coughs> ha ha ha. And all his friends said, yes, that's it. And Miller's like, no, they'll kill us. But they did it. They built the confessional, 
and they had it up and running after one night of getting high and another night of drinking and people started to come in and check it out. But the confessional was with a twist. Miller was first in the booth. They said, hey, it was your idea. You should be first. He was like, hey, I was just kidding, but he went in anyway. And the first person came in about midnight and the guy walked in and said, what, I'm supposed to tell you everything I've done wrong? And Miller said, no, it's not that kind of confessional. He said, I need to confess to you. And Miller confessed to him the brokenness of the church first, how the church had failed on issues like white supremacy, slavery, how the church had failed on issues like colonialism and genocide, how the church had failed when it had been more interested in judging people and condemning people than loving people and seeking reconciliation. And then Miller, then Miller confessed his own sin. And he told of his own shortcomings, of his own fearfulness, of his own timidity, of his own struggles and problems and shortcomings and failings. And he spent about an hour confessing to this young man who had come in. And they embraced. And they were reconciled. The man forgave him. And Miller walked out, and and by the time he had finished, all of his other friends were talking with other people. There were so many people that wanted to do this, they, they couldn't all get into the confessional, so they were at picnic tables, and they were standing in the parking lot, and they were having these conversations. And in and, and this place, where the church went in, not with, hey, I've got all the answers, and let me tell you what's wrong, and how you can fix your life, they went in leading with their weaknesses in confession, and what they saw was not resentment and hostility, but reconciliation. They made room for God to come in. Prior to that experience, any time this small group had tried to do anything and invite other people to participate, Bible studies or other activities, they might have gotten four or five people to come in. After this, they started seeing 15, 20, 30, 40, 60 people coming in as they, as they launched and led ministries to, to address poverty and to feed the hungry and talk about truth and justice. They opened the door with confession and in walked God and the outcome was reconciliation. How do we know it'll work? You might say, that's nice, Blevins, that's fine. You got an ancient king, an ancient prophet. You've got this dude, David Miller, all the way out. Who knows where, Alexander. That's great. Those are isolated points. How do I know that if I confess, I'll be forgiven? How am I to find the courage to look at the monster inside of me? How do I know it's not just going to be pain and horror and shame and brokenness upon brokenness upon brokenness? Because we have this assurance. We have this assurance. I got good news and bad news with the assurance. One is that the assurance is 100% guaranteed, and and we see it in Scripture over and over and over again. Um, Jesus is one of his apostles, one of his closest friends, John, wrote this in his first letter, 1 John 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, he, Jesus, God, is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Psalm 130, verses 3 and 4. If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? But with you, there is forgiveness. (coughs) Excuse me. So that we can, with reverence, 
serve you. And then further on in that psalm, we see these words on verses 7 and 8. Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. You see, Jesus comes in, and he himself redeems That's the assurance we have from Scripture. We see it in the words and we see it in the life of Jesus hanging on the cross, tortured, beaten, betrayed, lied about, shamed, publicly disgraced, publicly Jesus hanging on the cross, being mocked and ridiculed, even by the thieves who were hanging with him. They were dying too, and they were mocking and ridiculing Jesus. But something happened somewhere along the way, and one of those criminals (coughs) looked at Jesus, and he had that moment of worship. And he could see Jesus for who he was, a glimpse of his glory and holiness and majesty. And he understood in that moment that Jesus was not worthy to be mocked, but worthy to be worshipped. And he said to Jesus, he said to the others, hey, cut it out. We're dying because we deserve to die. This man has done nothing. And he said to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Confession of faith, confession of praise, confession of his own brokenness. And what did Jesus do? Jesus said, not here's a get out of hell free card, not stamp, I've I've, I've approved your forgiveness of sin. Here's your legal pardon. He said, today you will be with me in paradise. That's the good news. The bad news is this. We don't always feel it. But don't let that shake you. Don't let that throw you off. Our feelings are a terrible gauge of external reality. I'm just about out of time. I'm going to go a little bit over, but I'm, I'm, I'm almost done here. Our feelings are a terrible gauge of external reality. And they're so easily used and manipulated by the enemy I mean, Paul, Paul felt very confident that destroying the church was an act of service and love to God until he met Jesus on the road. And Jesus said, no, your culture's messed up, you're broken. It's not how we feel. But I, I can tell you this, do it. Confess. Acknowledge your brokenness to God and to another human being. You you can do it by words, written or, or spoken. You can do it by actions, whether they're practical actions or symbolic actions, ways to show that you recognize your own brokenness, the brokenness of the culture into which you were born, over which you have no control and no power. You, you, were, you were born into this mess. Recognize, acknowledge it to God and to another human being and see if God doesn't come in. I can tell you this from my own experience that there have been moments, there have been moments when I have seen the worst that I am or at least as much of that as I'm able to see because I'm still afraid of all of it. I've seen who I am. And I've been like Peter in the boat and like the psalmist out of the depths crying, God, have mercy on me. And in comes God. And he said, that's why I died. For you too. 
for your culture too, for your family too, for your church too. Know that I love you. Know that you're received. Know that you're welcomed. And today, you're going to spend a moment with me in paradise. We need the confession. It's the way we make space for God to come in. We need God to come in to be reconciled with God so that we can be reconciled with others. My hope and my prayer for you this week is that you find the courage to confess. Confess to God, to another human being that you trust. Open it up and speak about yourself the way you already know that God speaks about you. And see God come in and experience that assurance. In Jesus' name, amen. There's so many things to take away from that message on confession. You know, it's something that we don't do a lot of. But what really struck me, that's the second time I heard Scott preach that word. And I hadn't ever thought of confession as making space for God. And as we make space for God, we make space for others, all others. If you're feeling a blockage in your life, uh, something, your prayer life, whatever it might be, with your relationship with God, maybe it's time to confess. If we're feeling blockage with each other, maybe it's a time to confess. Maybe what our nation really needs is confession, corporate confession. And it getting back in touch with our common brokenness, as we say around here at Garfield. When I went to Colgate University, uh, I was a broken young man. I've shared my story many times. I grew up in church, but all that did was make me religious. But I encountered my college chaplain, Dr. Coleman B. Brown. He became a lifetime spiritual mentor of mine. And at Colgate, Coleman turned me from being religious into being a Christian into being a follower of Jesus Christ and surrendering my life to Christ. I carry around a book of his sermons from way back then. And I was thinking about this as I heard uh, Scott and Terry preparing this message this week and we would talk together as a team. And I remember at the very end of this book, there's Coleman has a prayer confession, something he wrote that we prayed every Sunday at University Church. And as I thought about Scott's making room, I realized as I was praying that prayer again and again and again, it was helping me make room so that Coleman could bring the gospel to me, the gospel of grace, and I could surrender. So as we, we always pray ourselves out before the team leads us to praise ourselves out, and I thought today we would pray this prayer of confession together. The words are going to be on the screen. We don't always do this, but we're going to do it now. And we're going to ask you to pray this prayer corporately with me. Say these words and see if they may not help you make some room for God. Ready? Servant Lord and God of glory, we are before you this morning as broken men and women in need of forgiveness. Having come from anguish moments in the night and betrayals in the day, having said cutting words or no words, often bewildered by the obvious or subtle suffering that we see or that is our own, we have been uncertain. We have concentrated on defense of ourselves and we found the condemnation of others easy. We have not received others simply as they are, 
nor met them as ourselves. Hear our various inward cries, forgive us and heal us. Alone we cannot be healed. Therefore lead us to the discovery of others. Free us from our several bondages. Cleanse our hearts with honesty. Give us courage to accompany our fears. And bring us even to faith and hope and love. In the strong and powerful name of Jesus, let us say, Amen.